Welcome to another episode of Red Skies, where we seek to read the cultural signs of our times in conversation with thought leaders from around the globe. Our goal is to find a path for our future as the church, asking the question, how can we as followers of Jesus be good news to an ever chaotic and divisive world? This podcast is brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective, a community and catalyst for movement leaders worldwide, and 100 Movements Publishing, seeking to change the conversation, shift paradigms, equip leaders, and inspire missional discipleship, and is produced and presented in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance, a generative, expansive, and intercultural network around theology and practice. You can find out more about the book, Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations About Our Future as the Church, as well as other tools available to help your church, organization, or movement at redskiesfuture.com. The book can also be purchased on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and other platforms where books are sold. You can enter the missional conversation with other movement leaders around the globe at movementleaderscollective.com. And now for this week's episode. Hey, well, welcome to another Red Skies Conversation. Um, I am one of your hosts, Roland Smith, and joined by Rich Robinson, my co-host, who is in Edinburgh, Scotland. How's it going over there, Rich? Uh, doing well. The sun was shining today, which is a very rare occurrence in Scotland. So I enjoyed it. We're just coming into into spring. So doing well. Yeah. At the time of this recording, it's 10 p.m. there. So we appreciate you joining us uh, at such a late hour as well. Yeah. Um, we are joined by two of our friends. One is an old, old friend of ours, uh, Deb Hirsch, and another is a brand new friend, Greg Coles. I've known of Greg's work for some time now, but uh, man, it is so good uh, to get to know you on Zoom, at least, and good to see you here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. What a delight. And then Deb, uh, down under, how are you? It is always so good to be with you. Good, good, wonderful down under here at the moment. We're we're in autumn, which is my favorite season, so I'm very happy. Well, good. Well, we're going to jump into a chapter that you two co-wrote for Red Skies on human sexuality. Um, And before we do, I just want to read um, a little bit of the bios from the book on both of you so that people that don't know who you are uh, will get to know you a little bit and why you wrote this chapter together. Uh, Greg's the author of Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexuality, Identity, and uh, No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. Uh, He holds a Ph.D. in English from Penn State University and currently lives in Idaho's Treasure Valley, uh, where he works as a senior research fellow at the Center for Faith, Sexuality and Gender. And then Deb is a pastor, speaker and co-founder of Forge International. Uh, She's a founding board member of Missio Alliance and founding member of Movement Leaders Collective. Uh, Deb is the co-author of Untamed, Reactivating a Missional Form of Discipleship, as well as the author of Redeeming Sex, Naked Conversations About Sexuality and Spirituality. Um, And so it is obvious that you two are the people we need to talk to when we're talking about um, sexuality and being uh, good news as the church um, to this culture. Uh, and I wonder if I might just kind of kick us off um, with a question, uh, or really, I want to ask Greg, you and Deb, um, you know, is is this fair to say um, maybe that sexual identity is becoming um, more of a cultural awareness and acceptance, but the church still feels like it's kind of catching up to the conversation? Uh, I mean, would you say that that's that's a fair thing to say? I think, and Deb, by all means, hop in here too. I think what I would say is that uh, conversations around sexuality and sexual identity are certainly on the rise culturally. Um, interestingly, there is a sense in which the adoption of particular identity labels 
has in some ways become less important culturally, or so it seems than it used to be. Um, but but certainly the, the conversation on the whole is is on the rise. And so I think Deb and I would say collectively that we want the church to be aware of how this conversation is on the rise um, so that we're equipped as followers of Jesus to engage culture in a way that is uh, really aware and able able to speak into the questions that people are asking about who Jesus is. Deb, what would you say to that? Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as long as I've been a believer, which is a very long time now, you know, 35 years, I think, I remember stepping into the church and honestly, just th there was just there was just no conversation around human sexuality at all so for me you know even you know reading greg's bio you know he's working for the center of faith and sexuality and gender i i don't think i got that right but anyway you know the fact that we actually even have um you know places like that now where people can be resourced where their conversations are happening um is wonderful because it's been a long long slog over the years for people to bring this conversation to the table and the churches you know with with many things not just sexuality you know the church is often behind the eight ball <laughs> where we should be ahead you know showing the world healthy ways of being human on every level of our humanity especially sexuality and we've we've just been behind so i'm very excited about that that we can talk about sexuality today in a much more freer way and guys just uh, it's it's in the first sort of two three chapter uh, two three paragraphs of your chapter just reading a couple of quotes our sexuality is not just about sex despite what both secular culture and our church culture might imply so i'd love to hear a little bit more what do you feel the church is or isn't implicitly and explicitly saying about sexuality and then just dropping a little bit further down it says in our current western culture the topics of sex and sexuality pose some of the biggest barriers to people believing that the good news of jesus is actually good news so i'd love to hear just building that a little bit more what are the messages of the church? the church is having that conversation where is it doing it well where is it struggling what is the ground that needs to be taken and, and what are some of those barriers then that is hin are hindering or is hindering um people engaging with the good news of jesus when i think about the the ways that the the church has maybe cast a vision for sexuality um that that's a little bit uh a, a bit limited uh, in, in the way that it seems to communicate there is there is only one good and proper expression of uh, being a sexual human being and that's that you have to get married and if you get married then the fact that you are a sexual human being is good but if you don't then we need to not talk about it then we need to try to pretend as much as possible that we don't in fact have an experience of sexuality uh one one place where I experienced this somewhat recently uh, was when I took one of the quotes from uh, from the chapter that Deb and I wrote and put it on social media. And I'm terrible at social media, <laughs> but I managed to do this somehow by the grace of God. I found a way to get it on there. And it was one of the quotes where uh, Deb and I were reflecting on uh, the nature of Jesus, who as a single person also had a sexuality, which is a topic that I want us to get to before the end of this podcast, because I think it's really important to mind that. But yeah. I took a sentence where Deb and I were talking about this and I got multiple like comments back, I think like public comments on the post, like private comments of people being like, how dare you, Jesus isn't sexy, um, which I think maybe we should have made that the, the chapter, the, the title of our chapter, you know, like Jesus yeah. isn't sexy. Um, but but it, it was striking to me how much I think there is built into um, the cultural expectation of a lot of Christians, and I'll speak here especially for white Western evangelicals, because that's kind of my my own tribe for better and worse. Um, mm. But I think there's this there's this expectation built into our psyche that we couldn't possibly acknowledge that Jesus was a sexual human being because we know he wasn't married, and so in our minds he's not allowed to have any kind of sexuality. Period. Yeah. Um, and so 
it's it's interesting that at, at the same time that that culture was would say, well, of course, you know, we're all sexual, and so everybody needs to be engaged in genital sexual activity with another person in the way mm-hmm. they desire. It's as if Christians have bought into that reduction of sexuality and said, like, well, granted, sexuality is just about genital sexual activity with a person you desire, but only within marriage. And so, you know, we've limited the thing to marriage, and yet we've we've bought into this lie that says that our sexuality is in some way reducible merely to uh, sexual expression. Uh, yeah. yeah. Deb, add to that. Make 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 me sound smarter here. <laughs> I couldn't do that, Greg. Um, but but I, I do think, I mean, I absolutely agree with what Greg is saying there. And I think the reduction of, of, of human sexuality to expression or to what we call, you know, we distinguish between genital and social sexuality um, is, is definitely a huge problem in the context of the church. And I think what, what we've done in the, in the bigger picture really is separated our sexuality from our spirituality. And that's the first disconnect that has actually created all this. It's created um, our limited understanding of human sexuality to just being about behavioural mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff. And we put it into the ethical category all the, and, and then it's naughty behaviour, you know, we get all that sort of kind of obsession of, around who's doing what. And then, you know, so that that's a limiting there, but it's also you know uh, we we what Greg has mentioned we've left Jesus out of the picture, um, and I, I hadn't seen your your social media post, Greg, but I can only imagine, um, and I think a failure to do that on a you know on multiple levels has 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 caused a lot of problems for us. You know, sexuality, you know, we've got to open it up to see it much more about human longing and yearning for connection. And that doesn't just involve our genitals. You know, that's, that's stuff of deep intimacy and heart connection and relationships. And so, you know, when we begin to see it in, in light of, um, you know, it, it reflects our, you know, our spirituality and, and sexuality has got so much in common with one another. You know, you know we talk, I talk in my book about it being two sides of the same coin. You know, it's all about our longing and yearning for love, to, to love and be loved, to, to know and be known. And... And I think when we when we broaden out our definitions and bring it back into spirituality, then Jesus certainly has the sexuality. It's just not expressed in a certain aspect, but it's certainly expressed in his relationships and his need for intimacy and all of that. And you know, and that's I think we're, I think that's where we've missed out and why we get these weird things like Greg was saying of you know single people we don't talk about their sexuality because somehow we. You don't think they're sexual anymore. It's only sexuality only kicks in when you get married, you know. <laughs> it's just right. and there's a lot of weird stuff that comes with it, isn't there, Greg? I mean, you <laughs> you've experienced this many, many times and in conversations. So yeah, I, I think there's we've got some homework still to do. And I think people are clicking into this. You know, I'm talking with pastors all the time that are starting to recognize, whoa, there's a missing piece here. We've got to somehow join this in with our sexuality and understand the broader concept of, you know, human human sexuality. So, and Debs, could you just? I, I, it would be great, Debs. I, two two of the pieces of your chapter, um, you guys, I I circled. So taking it down into Jesus before we then go go anywhere else. So so one of them is, as the church moves into the future we must more intentionally look to Jesus as an exemplar for a positive vision of sexual holiness, uh, wholeness, sorry. And then the other one, as the model of Jesus shows, our sexuality can be fully expressed in ways that have nothing to do with our genitals. So just talk a little bit more about Jesus expressing his sexuality then, because that is a space that stretches most people's thinking. So just kind of unpack that a little bit. How do you see Jesus expressing his sexuality? How would you take somebody on a journey to see that differently from maybe, as you said, Greg, where the narrow and the reduced, he wasn't married, therefore, dot, dot, dot. Well, I remember the chapter, one of my chapters in my book is uh, Jesus' sex symbol, question mark. And I also got pulled up on that, Greg. Uh, And I put a question mark on it. (laughs) So... But I, look, I do think, again, we've got to, when Greg and I were um, 
discussing the chapter, we talked about the whole concept of what what is sexual wholeness? What does sexual wholeness look like? And, you know, we talk as Christians, you know, Jesus is the answer for everything. You know, it's well, if you say Jesus, you're not going to get it wrong. But we never put Jesus as the answer for sexual wholeness. And I think not only does he embody sexual wholeness um, as a as a single, you know, think of you think of God came in a human, a male human body and lived a celibate life. You know, that's interesting when you think of of, uh, of that because there's no reason why Jesus couldn't have got married. Um, but again, he's the model for perf- a perfect, perfect, the only perfect human that we can look at. And um, so I think it's it's on many levels. It's not just the expression of his sexuality. And again, when we think expression of sexuality, we automatically our minds go to genital stuff or we've got to we've got to move it's much bigger than that so we've got to also see it that it's our our intimacy needs of our hearts or depth of relationship and all the rest of it well we can look at that with jesus you know we, we forget that actually jesus as a man needed people we always think we need jesus but actually jesus needed people he needed to be loved and he needed to love you know, and so there's this sense where you when, you, when you begin to, and I remember years ago, somebody was talking about Jesus' circle of friendships, you know, and they kind of expand out because he's, you know, he's got, he's got like the crowds at the end. But as you move in, you see there's different levels of intimacy with both men and women, um, which again is, is interesting and points to that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just about the expression of who he was as a man that he teaches us, but he you know, if he is the model, if we say Jesus is a model of human sexuality, then this is something, you know, often, I've often said to you over the years to single people, you're actually reflecting what heaven's going to be like more than us marrieds are because there's no give and take in marriage anymore. You know, so in some sense we're all, we'll all be interconnected but we will all be unique and not, not, you know, bound to one another in the way that we are in terms of marriage covenant. Now we we have the marriage covenant with the Lord, so we're bound to one another in a different uh, sense. And so, but there's also many things that He teaches us about how human relationships are to be expressed. Um, again, just His singleness. Again, you know, in the church we have marriages often. You know, and I know Greg will say something about this. It's often set up as the as the idol. You know, and every every single person is kind of, you know, oh, it's we're, we're, we're looking for our partner, you know, by the time we're old enough to, you know, realise that we get married at some point, you know, and, and even that, it's, it's so we're conditioned for that. But Jesus is saying, hey, that's not the be all and end all. In fact, you know, there's a, you read Jesus and Paul, it's the preference is actually for singleness, you know, but I'll, I'll leave that, I'll leave that one for Greg because, I think we don't touch on that, but, but it's also Jesus says, you know, he's, he sets up a new form of family as well, and this is another big one, you know, how we relate as family and what, what that means for us. And I think, you know, we again, the church, we've, we've narrowed our understanding down to, you know, our, our cultural expressions of family, you know, and in the West it's been the nuclear family, you know, and that's kind of what most of us have grown up in. Um you know, many people grow up in extended family type family structures and, and systems, which I think is far more biblical than the nuclear family, which is a very narrow little version. But I think, you know, Jesus even addresses this, how we configure ourselves and what is family and what and who is our prime family, you know. Um, so there's a, you know, in the whole passage where he's, you know, the, his mother He's trying to, and his brothers and trying to get hold of him. And the disciples are saying, Hey, Jesus, your mum, they need you out there. And he's like, Who? who? I, I mean, I just laugh when I think of this. Like, what, what Jewish son says, Who is my mother, <laughs> my brothers, my sister? Um, you know, and there's something radical in there that he's, mm. he's dealing with that we've got to pay attention to. He's come to institute a new family, a new form of family. It doesn't mean that biology is not important. But it means that the people of God, we are to configure ourselves and see ourselves as a family. And that says a lot about the way we relate to one another. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, I could go on about that. It's a yeah. little pet peeve of mine. But I, I do think in Jesus we find the model of sexual wholeness, not just his, in sexual expression but in he has a lot to say about the way we navigate our relationships, the way we 
structure ourselves, if you like, it's probably not the best word, but the, the way we understand family, the way we uh, honour one another, the way he was with women, like, you know, he was, he was the revolutionary with that, wasn't he? I mean, the church, we're terrible with male-female relationships. We have no capacity to navigate those because we, we haven't been taught. We haven't, again, modelled from the Lord. So, so I think there's a lot in there that we can unpack. But Greg, I'll hand it over to you because I know you've got things to say. <laughs> oh, Deb, you've generously given me so many things I could riff on here. Uh, one that one that strikes me particularly, uh, I'm I'm reminded of the 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 C.S. Lewis quote where he's saying, you know, we we have these desires and and there are things that satisfy them. Um, and then he says, you know, if if I find in myself a desire that um, that nothing on, in the world can satisfy. The, the most likely explanation is that I was made for another world. And an interesting thing about the experience of human sexuality, I think, is that uh, there's there's this kind of longing within us that at, at times it seems to be sort of pointed toward another person, um, but there's really no way that we sort of finally satisfy that longing. At least the rumors I hear about having sex, you know, and I can't confirm them because I'm over here hanging out in singleness. But the rumor I hear is that you don't like have sex and then say to yourself, oh, well, that solves the problem. You know, like that's all done now, you know, but there's this kind of ongoing longing um, in the experience of it. And so the question of like, what does it look like to, to have this experience of whole bodied longing and how do we order that in ways that are constructive? And how do we recognize that ultimately our whole bodied longing is meant to point us in the direction of eternity? Um, right. I, I don't think it's coincidental that scripture uses this marital imagery to talk about the relationship between Christ and the church, because it is this moment where in the end, finally, our whole bodied longing is consummated with our Lord. And so in that sense, um, it, it seems to me that the that, that the healthy way to think about our our experience of longing as people who have a sexuality, even when, when we're single, is not to say, oh, shame on us that we aren't just asexual people, all of us. Um, but maybe it is instead to say, ah, here's, here's a, a part of our experience that needs to be rightly ordered, um, that needs to be pointed in the direction of our love for God, rather than pointed toward another human being. Um, in in some kind of uh, way that desires to, to make them into an object for us, and I think we see the Apostle Paul modeling that. Uh, and and this is this is getting back to what Deb brought up about you know the the sort the the virtue of singleness, some of the benefit of singleness, even when Paul is writing in First Corinthians chapter seven uh, about singleness and marriage. And he says, you know, the, the, the single person is concerned with the things of the Lord, you know, um, uh, speaking specifically of the single woman, he says, you know, she is dedicated to the Lord in both body and mind. Um, uh, and then he goes on, you know, but the married person is concerned with the things of the world and how to please their spouse. Um, and he wraps up that chapter by saying, you know, so then the one, who, the one who marries, they do okay, but the one who does not marry does better. And I've always said that I would love to see that passage read at a marriage ceremony. I just think that would be <laughs> hilarious. Um, uh, but, um, but I, I, I think, I think it's, it's really valuable for us to ask, uh, how can all of us, married and single alike, think of our experience of sexuality as something that is meant to inform our understanding of the kind of whole body devotion that we are called to have uh, mm -hmm. for the person of Jesus. Um, and yeah, uh, not to, not to just turn sexuality into a pure metaphor, um, but to recognize that that metaphor is not accidental in scripture, that there's, there's something that there's something that the Bible is trying to tell us um, and, and just to say a hearty amen to uh, some of what Deb mentioned about the way we see Jesus uh, modeling his sexuality as a, as a single person, you know, I, I think it's worth noting all these interactions that Jesus has um, with both men and women um, in, in ways that are, uh, that are relationally close um, in ways that I can imagine someone saying like, this is very scandalous, you know, either like, why are you alone with this woman at the well? People will say things. Um, or, you know, like, why are you letting John the Apostle rest his head on your breast? That sounds a little bit sketchy, you know, like all, just all of these, all of these moments 
where uh, Jesus is not willing to let the potential accusation of someone saying, this looks scandalous to us. He's not willing to let that get in the way of the proper ordering of his love for his fellow humankind uh, to, to see those things expressed in the way he re- uh, in the way he relates, in the way that he shows care and compassion for his fellow human beings. Uh, and so in that, in that sense, in the sense that sexuality is always a, a question that is an issue for us, um, it's great to see how Jesus chooses to interact with people in another culture where sexuality was also a thing that was at issue, though perhaps somewhat differently, certainly somewhat differently than it is in the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, let me, so let me try to take what you, you, you two have just said and kind of shift us a little bit toward praxis, because one of the, one of the constructs of this book is to kind of pose the question to ourselves, how can we be good news people over the next two decades, you know, to, to some, some of the new things in culture. Um, and, and what I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong. What I hear you saying is that, um, you know, se- sexual ethic has always been tied to behavior. And so sexual identity kind of gets lumped into that too. Like we're not able to, we're not, not able to have sexual identity without sexual behavior and look at those separately. And what it leads me to believe or think about is like, I mean, for example, the LGBTQ conversation today, uh, which the church is more and more becoming aware of. And so there's a sexual identity there that is getting lumped in with sexual behavior and we ignore the person because of the behavior. And then, and this sometimes throws up hurdles to conversation, to good news, to loving our neighbor, those kinds of things. And Deb, I know you've written about this um, at length. Um, and so could you just kind of riff on that a little bit, Greg, kind of starting out? And because I know in in the work that you're doing now, you're trying to bring, I think, the church together uh, with um with a culture of sexual identity to talk about what the kingdom looks like. And so, so how do you see that playing out? Yeah. Yeah. I think when I, when I think about the the practical things that we can do as people of Jesus to, to change the, the nature of the conversation that we're having around LGBTQ experiences, um, in a way that helps us see the good news of the gospel as it, as it relates to, to all people and not just to straight people. Uh, one thing that I think is really important uh, is that we turn toward the toward the, the yeses uh, that, that Jesus offers um, to us um, in the yeses in marriage and singleness, um, the yeses in the ways that we are called to love and serve one another, um, and that we make those positive vocations the focus of our encouragement, rather than uh, rather than hearing people's experiences and saying like, ah, let's focus on all the things that you should not be doing. Let's focus on all the no's that you need to say in order to follow Jesus. Um, and that's not to say that sexual ethics aren't important. It's not to say that there aren't proper boundaries to be placed around sexual expression. Um, but I, I think it's it's more helpful to begin by saying, hey, we can recognize. Um, that God is not surprised by your experience of sexuality or your gender identity, whatever it, whatever the cards that you have been dealt that you're trying to process what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Um, there's no hand of cards uh, that you can have that Jesus is somehow shocked by, uh, that somehow disqualifies you from being his disciple. Um, and so we can enter into those conversations with the hopefulness and optimism of asking what positive things is it that Jesus might want to call you specifically to within the experience that you have, whether that's the experience of being LGBTQ or same-sex attracted, whether it's an experience of gender dysphoria, um, how can you positively follow Jesus? Again, whether whether that's going to mean uh, singleness, um, and if it is, how can we see a positive vision for singleness? How can we see hopeful relational opportunities within singleness so that singleness doesn't need to be this condemnation to a life bereft of emotional or relational intimacy? 
Um, but I, I think that's that's the first thing I would want to say is to to reframe our conversations so that we're not focused so much on the no's as we are on the yeses. Um, and and all of the all of the no's uh, get sort of shaved away as we lean into the good and proper yes. Um, mm-hmm. As we move toward the person of Jesus, we naturally move away from all of the things that are not Jesus. Um, but it's far more compelling to cast a vision for following Jesus than it is to try to X out every single thing that is not Jesus and be like, we think you can find Jesus just by process of elimination. Uh, like if we could put Jesus at the center, um, that that would, I think, be much more constructive. Yeah. De- yeah. Deb, would you riff on that a little bit also? Because uh, I one of the things that this really impacted me from your past work, and you included it in this chapter in Red Skies, is um, you know it's kind of the bounded centered set approaches that we take to people, um, and the you know we even had a little diagram in there of believe, believe, behave, belong, which the church has kind of practiced maybe even unintentionally in the past. And so, so how do we posture ourselves? Uh, you were a pastor of uh, a primarily trans and gay church in LA for for a while, and so I know you've you've actually lived this out. How do we posture ourselves as pastors and church leaders um, toward conversations of uh, like this? Uh, I think. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> frog in my throat. I think. Um, I think our posture is very important. Um, no question about that. There's, you know, I think, oh, where do I begin with this one? <laughs> I, I think there's there's got to be a lot of shifting from, you know, from our behalf, you know, from, from Christians. And I think, you know, we're already, again, we're behind the eight ball, culturally speaking, that, you know, the way the world looks at us is not, it's not really great. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Um, and especially the LGBT community, you know, they've, you know, they have been hard done by, by, you know, by broader culture and in particular the church for forever, really. And um, so I think there's a lot that we can, you know, we need to shift our posture in relation to them. I think just a, a couple of little practical things and, you know, I mean, I've been talking about, about these things for years, but, you know, just... And these are broader missional principles, you know, that apply to anybody, really. And I think, you know, when you're talking about the centred and um, bounded set kind of models, again, that's, you know, that's my heart as a missionary, <laughs> you know, that we that we don't have these kind of uh, bounded sets where people can't access God. You know, we've kind of cut, cut him out in some ways. You know, in the, the book we talk about, you know, belonging, believing and behaving, and if you believe what we think, believe, behave the way we tell you to behave, then you get to belong with us, you know, whereas actually Jesus was quite started from a different place, you know. Everyone had access to Jesus. Um, so I think we we have to allow access. We've got to begin, you know, I, I love talking about, you know, that, that the parable that we uh, mention in the book, you know, of the uh, the tourist visiting the Australian outback and he's out on a ranch with the with the farmer and and he's looking out and sees all the sheep and he doesn't see any any fences and he questions this you know how do you where are the fences how do you keep your sheep in and he says oh we don't need to build fences here we just dig a well and the sheep won't wander very far you know and I think that the whole concept of the church learning to dig a well, a deep well in the person of Jesus, you know, who is the living water, you know, and we've got to give people access to the living water. I I was given access to the living water and it changed my life. And I think, you know, putting Jesus at the centre and, and giving people access, and I think I think that's the first, the most important thing, whereas we, you know, if, if people come to us, you know, like, like Greg talked about, it doesn't matter what, what's going on? Nothing's too hard for Jesus. Nothing's off limits, you know. <laughs> we come as we are, just as we are to him. And I think in, in a church context, we've we've created this bounded kind of set where people have to tick boxes or jump hoops to, to actually get in, whereas, you know, so we've, we've 
we've limited access to Jesus. And I think, oh, my gosh, we're going to get in trouble for that one. I'm telling you, <laughs> we don't. That's not our role. Our role, our prime role <laughs> on earth is to help people find Jesus, not to say this is what you've got to do in order to get to him. You know, it's he, he he's there open for all. So I think, you know, that, that means our posture has to shift in the way that we are with people. And I think... You know, starting starting with the Imago Day, recognizing that every human being is created in the image of God, and you know we've been scripted to see people as sinners first, and you know th- that are in need of redemption. Yes, of course, we all need <laughs> we all need redemption and all the rest of it. But it's only a secondary truth. The primary truth is they're created in the image of God and need to be reconnected to God. I mean, that's the human condition. We're lost. We need reconnection. And I think if we as missionaries and as pastors in churches and, you know, uh, people to rep- that are representing Jesus, if we begin to actually look at people as somehow reflecting our God, oh, my goodness me, that's, I mean, it's a great challenge with some people, isn't it? Let's be honest, okay? But it is, it is one of the most core missional practices we can actually live out. And you know what? It is, it is I just imagine if the church were able to do that, in their neighbourhoods, with the people that they're connecting with, what a difference. Instead of the, you know, pointing the finger and, oh, look at those naughty people out there and all this horrible behaviour they're getting into and all those sexual people, what are they, you know, it's all that kind of judgmental horribleness, isn't it? You know, that's not yeah. that's not what we're meant to be like. So I think there's, there's definitely big posture shifts. There's, uh, we've got to have access. There's also the whole thing of arguing theology and I always talk about lead with embrace not with your theology if you put your theology between you and the other person it just ends up in arguments and you know like Al Al used to always say we you know we're all only going to get six out of ten for theology anyway when we get to heaven I think it's more like two you know I think that's very high six two is more like it you know let's not fight over things all the time it doesn't mean we can't have rigorous debate and all that but Start with a posture of embrace, mm. not, you know, oh, if you agree with me, then I will embrace you. No, no, no. We've got to learn how to navigate difference and, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I think that's the one of the greatest challenges before us. I'll let Greg talk more about this too, like how we navigate difference in terms of our theological understanding and all that kind of thing. We, we have to give people grace and space and we're, we're all part of God's, you know, anyway. Greg, I'll hand over to you, Greg. <laughs> I mean, Deb, I feel like you've covered it beautifully. I'll, I'll just, I'll just add this on the, on the <laughs> level of uh, having space for theological disagreement. Um, and I, I feel like often people will approach questions and say, like, is this an agree to disagree kind of question? Like, are we allowed to disagree about this? And I wonder if our very framing of that question is unhelpful because it seems to assume that we have some power to decide whether or not people agree with us. Um, When the reality is nobody has ever asked my permission, like, hey, Coles, can I disagree with you? Like, they just go ahead and do it. Um, And so the question that we're called to answer is not, are people allowed to disagree with me? But the question we're called to answer is, because I live in a world where people do disagree with me, what does it mean for me to embody the presence of Jesus to those people? And what does it mean for me to create space um, for them to encounter Jesus in yet more beautiful ways than they have done, even as I seek to encounter Jesus in yet more beautiful ways than I have done? I think ideally, the church should be the best possible place for people who are wrestling through theological questions to do that wrestling. Um, and yet, unfortunately, we've gotten ourselves a reputation for being sometimes the worst place to wrestle deeply with theological questions. And so I think just making the church the kind of place where people want to be when they're not sure, where people want to be even when they disagree, um, I think that's that's what it really looks like for us to be the body of Christ to those folks who are in those spaces of disagreement or discernment. Good, Greg. And and interestingly, that I was going to re- read as Deb's finished, handed over to you the the piece where you put consider how different it would look if our churches became known as the safest place rather than the least safe place for young people navigating sexual orientation and gender identity questions. And that goes for the same of wrestling with theological questions. And it 
it really does need to be a safe space to agree, disagree, learn, grow, and lead with embrace. I, I just want to read to you the, the final part of the final paragraph, and we're coming into land. And what I want to ask you is, as I read the picture that you paint for the future of the church, where do our listeners start? So it can be overwhelming and underwhelming, this conversation to think, yes, that's incredible. Oh my word, I, where do I start? How do I do this? This just feels like speaking a foreign language or venturing to a foreign land. So I'd love you. So this is the picture you paint, a church that learns to invite all people into human and sexual wholeness will be a church infused with grace, a church where every sexual being encounters a positive vision for their sexuality, a church that honours the distinctive beauties of both marriage and singleness, a church that rejects behaviour management in favour of true life-altering discipleship. We eagerly look forward to being part of a church like this. So where where do we as a church, where do we as Christians, if the people are listening as leaders, parents, single, in a denomination, in a microchurch, wherever and whatever they're doing, where and how do they start? What is the sort of either education journey or experience journey? What do they need to think through differently and embrace who or where do they need to connect? What Where do they start this journey? One small step towards that that future destination so greg first then deb's just yeah a word for people as they listen inspired challenged huge vista big topic where where do they start what's the the first step you would recommend or a set of one or two or three you could pick one two or three of these steps Oh, perfect. I'm so glad you said that three was in the acceptable range because I was like, I think I have three, but I'll keep them short. Um, and and they are one B, one C, Greg. You can have all three. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> um, the the first is um, uh, I would say uh, recognize with humility that like the the enactment of this vision is not primarily about you. Um, which I realize doesn't sound like a concrete step, but I think sometimes we we run into concrete steps as if us doing the concrete steps will be the thing that brings about the work of Jesus. Um, and so I think as you do concrete things, do them with a mentality that recognizes to the degree the church gets here, it will be the grace of God, and it will not be because we did things brilliantly. Um, having said that, um, I think thought number two would be try to find some people who are modeling some aspect of this vision in a way that you want to emulate. Um, so w- whether that means seeking out a church where single people are uh, deeply honored and are engaged in the leadership of the church um, in ways that's atypical, uh, maybe that means um, making a point of listening to the stories of some uh, LGBTQ or same-sex attracted folks who are following Jesus in costly ways and, and hearing what that looks like. Um, uh, maybe it means finding somebody who, like Deb, uh, is you know doing terrific work um, in helping LGBTQ folks who are outside of the church meet Jesus for the first time, um, but find somebody to emulate and eavesdrop, listen in on what they're doing. Um, and then I think, uh, lastly, I would say, um, look for some very simple individual relationship or individual connection that you can make in your own local community so that you're not thinking about the other in abstraction, um, but you're finding actual concrete people and saying, let me build a relationship with this person, or let me build a relationship with this local community of people who feel like they don't currently fit into our church's vision, but we would love to change things so that they could be a part of that vision. Just start a relationship. So those are my thoughts. I think that's great. I, I don't I don't really have a lot to add to that. I think we could we could talk about each of those um, and expand them out. But I think one of the things I think that there's still that I come up against um, again and again is is you know still a lot of fear. You know, a lot of fear of you know, and I think this goes along with you know. As pastors, especially, we don't like to be out of control. So, you know, the fear of having to, oh, how do we navigate this conversation of human sexuality? You know, I want to expand it again to to beyond just the LGBTQ conversation here because I think one of the first things we have to do is recognise that each and every one of us is 
<laughs> is a sexual being, you know. And so I always talk about the LGBT conversation as a micro conversation, very important, especially in our culture today, but it's a micro conversation that belongs in the bigger macro conversation of human sexuality. So don't just have our conversations around those people over there and how we have to navigate them and all the rest of it. It's profoundly important and we need to have those conversations. But actually, it's a conversation that every community of faith needs to have. How do we embrace ourselves as sexual beings? How do we have a broader and a bigger understanding of what human sexuality is? How do we integrate our sexuality and our bodies, as Greg has said, into our spirituality? And what does that look like for all of us? So this is a conversation that the church needs to have for all of us, not just about our missional outreach to, you know, particular people groups and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that's one thing. But the other thing is, it is, you know, along with the fear, fear causes judgment and it causes, you know, distance between one another and that. And I think we need to let, you know, I find a lot of pastors get get scared because they don't want messy people in their church or <laughs> it gets too messy. And and I remember, you know, when in our first church in, in Melbourne, here in Melbourne, in Australia, mess was that's who we were we were messy you know most of our people wore their sins on their sleeve and i'd say put them away i don't want to know it's like it was it was a messy community but it was a real community um and i think that when we want people when when we don't want uh broken parts or broken you know parts of our broken humanity to be there we 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 I don't know. I just have this thing where there is messy humanity. God's amazing grace can step in. <laughs> when we try to pretend we've got it all together, um, we're, we're not le- leaving room for God's grace to come and just bring healing and bring beauty and bring wholeness. And so I think don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If God has got this. God has got this. Let's just be available, not mm. controlling and all the rest of it, just let the Lord lead with all of this and and th- there is brokenness in each of us, you know, and I think sometimes the acknowledgement of that is is the first step really. Mm. And igno- you know, and I know you, we just think of the church recently and, you know, this has got nothing to do with the LGBT community, uh, uh, Q community. It's think of all the sexual brokenness that's been going on in our churches of late. I can't even tell you these things keep me up at night. It breaks my heart because our brokenness has been left unchecked. It has been left unhealed because we're fearful to share what's going on in our lives and then we end up in dark places or being involved in relationships we shouldn't be. And, you know, these are these are our big leaders, some of these people that are, you know, it's just devastating to me and I think... Um, I think we've, there's got to be a, a community, a, a, an openness in our community where we can begin to share some of our brokenness. You know, the Bible tells us, confess your brokenness to one another and you'll find the healing in that. You know, there's there's still too much hiddenness around human sexuality because there's a lot of fear around it. And we don't want, we don't want the mess. The problem is the mess is there. We can't keep sweeping it under the carpet because it's not helping. <laughs> It's got to come out in the open. And I think God is hes doing something in his church at the moment around human sexuality and around sexual brokenness, and we've got to listen. What is the Spirit saying to us? There's still a lot of work to be done, but we shouldn't fear because God is God, and it's only when we're honest about what's, you know, about the mess that amazing grace can come and, and, and do what grace does, <laughs> which yeah. is the healing and the wholeness. So. I don't know. Such a good, such a good word, Deb. Um, I lo- I just love sitting here and listening to you preach. <laughs> we could just do this for another hour. Um, and I, I so appreciate your, um, your wisdom around that. And I'll just add, you know, on this podcast as a next step, um, I would highly recommend that people grab a copy of your book, Redeeming Sex, which isn't a new book any longer, but you know, my my family, we we had to walk through some um, sexuality discussions with our our kids and stuff. And redeeming sex was 
was a savior uh, text for us. And we still uh, encourage friends uh, that are walking through different things to pick up a copy and, and to read it. And so I would, I would say that'd be a great next step because I know you're not going to self-promote Deb. So I'm going to promote your, you for you uh, to do that. And you've got to have a, another book you're working on, right? Right now. Yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> do you have a release date or no? no I know I have better a writing than to ask date that. is probably the, yeah. the right question. Yeah, I know. I know. So, so expect a great, a great book from Deb, and um, uh, but definitely pick up Redeeming Sex, Greg. I know that you you are intentionally engaged in in helping curate this conversation with churches and the culture and community around them. So how can people get in touch with you or the work that you're doing um, if they have some further questions? Yeah, um, you can, uh, I'm findable in a variety of ways. I think if you Google my name, you'll end up on my website and you can send me a contact form that way. You can stalk me on social media, whereas you've heard <laughs> I'm really bad, but eventually I'll find your comment about how Jesus is it sexy there. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can also, uh, the, the work I do with the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, if you go to centerforfaith.com, you can see a lot of the stuff we've put together there. Um, and if you send a contact form through that website, chances are it will also end up before my eyes at some point. Um, but those, those are a couple ways to find what I'm up to. That's great. Yeah. And, and I'll also um, give you guys a review because the church I'm a part of, we've used the work that you and Preston and your teams do We've used it here with our youth groups and parents and stuff, and it and it has provided great conversations. So I would encourage people to uh, to look that up. So it has been so good to have a conversation with both of you, and I feel like we've just kind of hit the little bitty tip of the iceberg. This is such a huge topic, but it's also a topic as you've as you've both pointed out that we don't really like to talk about in the church. Um, and so I want to encourage people to pick up Red Skies, to get in contact with y'all, pick up your books and other stuff and um, and jump into the conversation. But we appreciate your time and what you're doing for the kingdom and for the church. And uh, so glad that you wrote this chapter in Red Skies. So thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining this episode of Red Skies, the podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective and 100 Movements Publishing in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance. You can join the conversation at movementleaderscollective.com and connect with us at Red Skies at redskiesfuture.com. And as well, pick up your copy of Red Skies 10 Essential Conversations for Our Future as the Church on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other places that fine books are sold. Be sure to like this podcast and share it with others. And we look forward to continued conversations on our future as the church.